This is Judaism Unbound, Episode 9, Deuteronomy. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofus. And we are here in Episode 9, themed by the book of Deuteronomy. Now, literally, Deuteronomy means second law. And in the thematic structure of the Torah, the book of Deuteronomy basically retells a version of the story that has come before in the previous four books, trying to put them all together and provide a certain perspective on what should be done going forward. So similarly, with the same theme, we are taking these next two episodes themed by the book of Deuteronomy, and we're going to use them to look back at our previous four themes, our first eight episodes, where we try to explore a variety of pieces that we think go into the creation of a lens through which we can look at the Jewish present and future. We are really excited to be joined today by Dr. Dan Mendelson Aviv, who in his own way has tried to put those pieces together or different pieces or a variety of pieces together and explore a whole story of where we are as a Jewish people and where we might be going. He does this in his book, End of the Jews, Radical Breaks, Remakes, and What Comes Next, which is available on Amazon, as well as other booksellers, I would imagine. Uh, in addition to being an author, Dan is a Jewish educator, a blogger at thenextjew.com, and a wonderful podcaster. His podcast, TanakhCast, explores the entire Bible over the course of time. I think uh, we're up to the Book of Kings as we're uh, releasing this. But um, Dan eventually plans to get through the entire Bible. So that's an impressive task. So Dan, based on all these uh, incredible projects that you're doing, you must be extremely uh, wealthy now and, and you probably don't really have to work. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, it's so lucrative that uh, I'm, I'm basically just up here in Canada enjoying free health care and playing in the snow. Well, that's great. Well, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. What I wanted to start talking to you about really stems out of your work on, on your book, End of the Jews, a few years ago. And, you know, we've spent the last eight episodes trying to use a lens that, that we've called Ipramistabra, basically this Aramaic expression about opposite thinking and trying to think about these things in a way that's different from the way that the Jewish community as a whole seems to be thinking about them. And you're somebody who really has, has done a lot of this trying to put the pieces together. And that's why we thought you'd be a great person to talk to at this point in our exploration. But um, I'm particularly interested in your take on both Jewish history and how you see the diagnosis of the present and how it leads to the future. So you, know, you mentioned my book. It came out about four years ago. And, that, and the book was sort of inspired by events that happened four years before that. So we're sort of like at this equidistant point between the actual, you know, sort of catalyst for, for the writing of the book. I mean, essentially, when, when I started thinking about, you know, the end of the Jews, it's really, we were kind of like four years post-financial crisis, and a lot of Jewish wealth had disappeared in a puff of, you know, Madoff, Ponzi smoke, and I watched my Twitter feed, you know, fill with all these stories of foundation funding disappearing, and Jewish schools closing, and institutions disappearing, and, and you know, it was like watching a very large ship, you know, take a hit to the hull and begin to list, you know, menacingly, and the as much as I'm a Jewish educator, I, I'm, a, I'm a passionate Jewish history, and I sort of felt that, you know, haven't we seen this movie before? And, and and my premise for the book kind of came out of the realization that, that as a people, we've sort of found ourselves at these kind of moments where the ship is listing you know, menacingly to the left and about to sink, but yet it didn't. And, you know, I, I went to sort of, sort of think back to 
to our history, our very long history, and about all these moments in time when it seemed like that all was lost, where, you know, circumstances kind of aligned against us and almost broke us as a people, but we didn't break. We, we had to remake ourselves in those moments and sort of emerge anew. That's why that's the title, End of the Jews, because really, you know, at these particular moments in history, you know, one kind of Jew ended and another kind of Jew took his or her place and carried the tradition forward. And, and I use the word remake intentionally, not, not, not a reboot. Now while we talk about our reboots now, you know, Spider-Man's being rebooted yet again. The reboot, you know, sort of sweeps away all the old continuities. A remake really is loyal to them and kind of tweaks them a little bit. So, uh, you know, if you're talking about history, then I guess the best example is the destruction of the first temple. You know, you had a, a Jewish people who their primary mode of connecting with their tradition and, and God was, you know, through a particular land and a particular agricultural cycle, uh, you know, sacrifice at the temple. There was only one place to do the sacrifices, and that was it. And then the Babylonians came and swept that all away. And not only that, they also took, you know, a vast majority of the people into exile. And so they had to sort of remake themselves there. I mean, they could have said, game over, we're done here, you know, our God was defeated, our land is destroyed, we're not there anymore, let's just disappear. But, you know, they remade themselves completely. And so in about three generations, they sort of reconstituted themselves. They created the Beit Tzvilah, which we would sort of call the synagogue, I guess. Many of, you know, scholars talk about this time as being, the, the, you know, when the Torah began to be canonized. So when that community sent, you know, Jews back to Israel, you know, in 538, you know, whatever it is, 48 years later, they returned to the sacrificial practices of their great-grandparents. But they also had the early proto-synagogue in place. They also instituted a public Torah reading three times a week. I mean, these are things that are familiar to us, but they were very new and innovative practices at the time. And, you know, had somebody from three generations before seen this, they would have said, like, well, this isn't Judaism. This is something else. But it's not. That's, that's the point. So, you know, they made the shift. It didn't happen overnight. It took kind of decades, but it eventually became the norm. What I sort of argue in the book, after looking at different junctures in Jewish history, is that we're sort of doing that right now. It's it's really interesting to hear you say that, and especially to unpack the word remake. Because um, so when I read your book, when I read End of the Jews, I was struck by that term, and and by a few other terms as well. So the the way you laid out your chapters, uh, the first section of your book, it's a look at Jewish history broken down into what you term radical breaks and remakes. And so we talked about the remake part, and I'm curious if you want to expand on some of the specifics of, A, what those radical breaks were, and, and also what it means that there have been so many. Well, a lot of the radical breaks I talk about in the book, you know, sort of fit into the sallow, barren mold of, like, Jewish history being this one long, you know, kind of terrible tragedy that, that a lot of them are sort of forced upon us. So you have kind of like the destruction of the first temple was one, but I even point to one preceding that about the notion of, the, you know, the Deuteronomist kind of the, the monarchies of Israel sort of eradicating inclusivist forms of Jewish practice that was commonly accepted up until the monarchy, but then kind of ended. And what I mean by that is if you look at like the behavior of the patriarchs in the book of Genesis, 
you know, they were fairly comfortable with, with paganism. I mean, they didn't, they, they weren't pagans, but they were tolerant, shall we say, of paganism. You know, so they would build their, you know, would build his altar next to a sacred tree of, that was a local cultic practice, you know, cultic site. And that was okay. And, you know, or Yaakov builds these standing, you know, these standing stones in various locations. But the, the, you know, the, the typical radical break is, you know, the sweep of empires coming in and destroying, you know, the destruction of the temple or the Bar Kokhba revolt. But the, the more ones that are recent to us, the most recent one being, you know, the, the rise of modernity, um, the end of the Middle Ages and the rise of modernity and the reform movement, that was sort of not, I wouldn't, I'm not going to use the word self-inflicted, but we sort of facilitated it ourselves. It's a, it's a real testament to Jewish resilience that we've each, in each instance, managed to figure out how to sort of move on and to sort of shed what needed to be shed and keep what needed to be kept and remake ourselves to, to sort of deal with a new reality. Uh, so I agree with you, first up. But um, you had a really interesting footnote that I... I laughed at and smiled at when I read the first time, and I hope that was intended, but uh, I, I want to read it aloud. But um, you say that, I purposely refer to Abraham and his kin, as well as Moses and the children of Israel, King David, as well as King Hezekiah, Josiah, and every other ancient ancestor as Jews. You refer to them as Jews. I do this even though many scholars and historians would offer Hebrew or Israelite or Judean as a correction as they regard Jew in those contexts as an anachronism. Telling indeed. And then you end the footnote. I thought that was great. And I'm curious, given what you're saying about how, how we've, we're looking at history not as one continuous thread, but as a series of radical breaks and remakes, why is it that you choose to use Jew for those folks which might, some would argue, paint a picture that it is that continuous threat. Well, I, I think it's part of the story that we sort of tell ourselves as a people, you know, that our, that Abraham was the first Jew, right, and that we're all descended from him. Um, but I think that, you know, if you go back to the word remake, you know, the difference between a remake and a reboot is that the remake preserves the continuity, you know. So we've done that. So there is, you know, you can draw a sort of, you know, a line directly from 2016, from the present moment, the Jewish people, and go all the way back through all the different incarnations of the Jewish people going back all the way to Abraham. I mean, you know, it's so far away from us. Abraham's Judaism is very different than ours, but there are certain elements that carry through. Um, and, you know, a certain vision of the world, you know, it could be anything from the you know, an ethical monotheism, anything really that, like, sort of carries carries forward. Uh, to the present day, you know, if you, you know, think about, you know, Moses and Exodus and his you know, view of how we treat the stranger that animates a lot of the you know, social activism work the Jewish community has today. So there is a continuity, even though, again, Abraham's Judaism is different than, than Isaiah's, which is very different than Ezekiel's, which is very different than the Hasmonean form, which is very different than the Judaism practiced by, you know, the Rambam which is different than the Judaism practiced by the Jews of Ashkenaz and the, and the Jews of America and Canada. Dan, is there something that you think makes Judaism especially good at these kind of remakes? Do you think it is especially good compared to other things that have undergone similar types of calamities? Is there something within Judaism that, that allows us to do this, or is this actually not particularly unique to Judaism? 
Well, I, I think that, uh, for example, the, the shift away from sacrifice and sort of a land-based belief system to religion and a belief system and a practice and an ethical system that's grounded in something portable like a Torah or a Mishnah or a Talmud or, or an evolving you know, set of practices that we call halakha, like the fact that there was a shift away from like we have to be in our land you know, in order to connect with God made us transportable and portable. And one of the things I talk about in the book that is kind of counterintuitive is that I actually look at the Bar Kokhba, the failed Bar Kokhba revolt as more of a turning point than the destruction of the Second Temple. Because and we, didn't, we tend not to talk about it, you know, when we teach Jewish history in this time period, we often focus on the destruction of the Second Temple as being like the tragic event of that, of that era. The thing is, if you think about it, like, and again, it was a terrible thing, and you know the destruction and the you know the scattering of the of the of the, of the Jewish center at, at that time was a terrible thing. But within sixty years, Jewish society reconstituted enough so much that they could take another run at the Romans. You know, like they had recovered. <laughs> you know, they talked about rebuilding the temple. That was like a thing that kind of kept the Jewish people going. But only after the failed Bar Kokhba revolt, they finally understand, look, you know, maybe we shouldn't have kinds of aspirations. Maybe we should be more cooperative with the, you know, living as a minority with the majority. We should figure out a way to accommodate them. We should figure out a more pacifistic mode to sort of get on and get along with people. Um, we need to definitely invest our energy in the study of Torah and, and, and spreading the, the tradition that way. But, from my understanding, and again, it's, I talk about it in the book, and it's very hard to sort of pin, pin down, but you know, most scholars will say that at the time of the destructions of the Temple and the Bar Kokhba revolt, you know, there were more Jews living outside of the land of Israel throughout the empire than there were living in the land of Israel um, during those events. So, you know, we already had this kind of idea of like not putting all of our eggs in one basket and just sort of... And so and it's a lot of time for trial and error, and we figured a lot of things out in the time, in, in the meantime. So, yeah, I think there's something very. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to wax in you know, the miraculous, but the fact is, we had a lot of time to figure this out. You know, Dan, I I wonder what you think about this uh, idea, and I I, uh, I want to give uh, credit for this uh, idea, which is not mine, although I'm not a hundred percent sure whose it is. I I heard it, uh, you know third hand. So uh, I'll just say that I, I believe it was a professor at JTS who made the point that when the second temple was destroyed and Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai famously asked Vespasian to give him the city of Yavne and its sages, where, which ultimately was uh, the cradle of the development of rabbinic Judaism um, before the Bar Kokhba revolt, but, but that was an important center of, of the beginnings of rabbinic Judaism, that that meant that Yavne and its sages were already there, right? Meaning that, that there was something going on already. And what I, what I uh, mean to say about that is whether it was the destruction of the temple or the Bar Kokhba revolt that kind of put the final nail in the coffin of Second Temple Judaism, there was a sense among some people on the leading edge, let's say, that um, that Second Temple Judaism wasn't working long before the, the temple was destroyed. And I heard you earlier talking about the time that we're in as being, you know, it was interesting to me when um, you basically 
we're talking about modernity, interestingly, and not, for example, the Holocaust. And um, I, I think that's right, right? I mean, I think that it's modernity that seems to that that seems to me to be the thing that has that caused the radical break. And then the question is ultimately, first of all, what is the thing that causes the sort of point of no return? And I suppose the other question is if we haven't, whether we, whether the financial crisis uh, in some way represents that point of no return or if we haven't reached that point of no return yet, and perhaps we'll never reach a point of no return. I mean, I hope so. I hope we don't in the sense of some kind of destruction that would be final, right? But I guess the question is in the meantime, you know, is there something that, is there is there a way to, to kind of get the remake to happen without having to reach that point? And so can we sort of sensibly talk about modernity as the thing that has forced the radical break and that forces the remake and that we can actually be working on that remake now, even if it turns out that the financial crisis isn't as horrendous as, as it might have seemed four years ago or eight years ago. Absolutely. And I think, I think your point about there already was a yeshiva in Yavne that when Ben Zakai asks for it, it's already there. I think that, you know, these things take a lot of time to sort of play out. And a lot of the, like a lot of the trends that you know, became rabbinic Judaism were already in place while the temple was still standing. And you're 100% right that there were people that were basically acknowledged even before, you know, Titus, you know, set fire to the temple that this temple system wasn't working. It wasn't sustainable. Um, and I think that, and again, this is just sort of a thought that's coming to me now as you mentioned this, that like, in fact, I think one of the sort of the catalyzing effects of the financial crisis was that the money to sustain these institutions that sort of kept things going ran out. And what I mean by that is that one of the things that modernity kind of did to us as, as a people was deprive us of the traditional narrative that it kind of explains what we're doing as Jews. We, in the, in the late 20th and early 21st century, one of the things we haven't come up with, and this is kind of what I'm hoping that I'm looking to you and your, and your colleagues and, and partners in your, in your new efforts to sort of move things forward, is to come up with a positive kind of affirmative reason why one should be involved in this thing called the Jewish people. Because all the traditional barriers to entry into the world that existed you know, in the pre-modern times and even at the beginning of modernity have been removed intellectually, socially, culturally. There's, there's no barrier to entry into, into Western civilization. And so we had the Shoah, and that sort of provided us with a negative reason to continue being Jewish, you know, sort of the same reasons, you know, with during the times of the pogroms, like, you know, they, they, they persecute us, they hate us, we have to stick together. Um, but, you know, we have, you know, we're, we're that many generations out from the Shoah, you know, we're, we are one generation away from being at the point where there are going to be no survivors left to tell their story to the, to the next generation of Jewish children. For them, it's going to be a story. And we don't have yet a, a positive, affirmative reason to give them to stay Jewish. And we had, we had schools, and we had federations, we had JCCs, and we had synagogues that were sort of doing the, the, the schlepping for all of us. Um, and kept things going, but you know the, the financial crisis kind of gave that a knock, and those institutions that were doing the heavy schlepping for us are teetering. They may not fall; a lot of them may not fall. 
some of them have, but um, we still haven't come up with that answer yet. And, and, and that's where I think, you know, to use another analogy from a different realm, if we can sort of invest our energy in the software, we don't have to worry so much about the hardware. Right. It's interesting. I want to come back to that point in a second. But one one thing that what you were saying, just in terms of describing what happened in the financial crisis, that, that what you were talking about made me think about was um, that, you know, maybe what, what was going on was that these institutions were already failing, failing financially, uh, as well as in all the other ways. Um, and they were being propped up by a number of wealthy people that um, were in a way masking the fact that these organizations really were not viable uh, in terms of having brought enough support from the people. And so in that sense, the, the destruction of the financial crisis was a destruction of that layer that was kind of propping up the institutions and actually revealed something that was there a long time. You know, I work with college students and people are always asking me whether this is a generational thing that we're looking at. And I say, to some extent, it's a generational thing, but I actually think that there's plenty of baby boomers and, and other folks who really, you know, Judaism isn't working for them and hasn't been working for them for a long time, but we didn't really notice the problem because maybe in part because there were wealthy people that were propping those institutions up and, and, and that went away. The inertia, like that, that, that energy that was in the system that kept these things going, kind of stopped. Like the mojo is kind of worn off and... They could have kept kind of playing along because there were the money was still coming in and these institutions were still open and they were still doing their thing. And but then you know the money kind of ran out and it, yeah and it, and it was devastating for a lot of people. But I mean I, I mean you know I, I think of the the slogan I don't know who came up with the slogan you know your buildings are empty because we're in the park you know like we're we mm-hmm. don't need the building. We don't, we don't mm-hmm. want to go into the building. There's no reason for us to go into the building. We, we're in the park. If you want to come out here and be with us, that's great. But like, we don't need that building, which is what I, I made that analogy of the hardware and software. Like, we don't really need to be investing so much into hardware. We need to be writing software that people can use. Right. And by software, I mean, I just want to make sure that I'm understanding what you're saying, that by software, uh, in part, you're talking about essentially this question about, you know, why be Jewish in the 21st century? So let's let's go there in, in terms because I think that a lot of um, what you write about in the latter part of your book starts to get at this question of what what are the things that fundamentally have changed in the needs and not needs and and interests of Jews today that makes the software that we're currently running not work for them and what do they need. Well, I mean, I can give you an example of something that is actually working, and it came across my feed in the last couple of days. I don't know if you've heard about the kitchen in San Francisco. Sure, we've been talking all about their Hello Mazel project lately. Hello Mazel, yeah. I mean, like, it's a, and again, and it's it's a very interesting phenomena that, like, and, and I'm just, I can give you the, like a thirty second spiel on it for your listeners who may not be familiar with it, but basically, right. um, you know. It's, you know, the, the kitchen described themselves as uh, one part, what is an indie spiritual community, one part San Francisco-based experiment, one part Jewish action tank, shake well and serve. You know, and when I, when I read that description, I imagine, like, that's probably what the old folks said about what the Jews of Babylon were doing when they got together in their batei tefillah and had their little sing-songs. Like, you know, you guys are doing some kind of crazy 
thing. I don't know what that is, but like, it's not anything we're familiar with. And I mean, essentially that's kind of like a show, you know, but I don't think, I don't think they'd call it that, but I mean, that's really what it is, isn't it? I mean, it's a, it's a spiritual community. It just, they named after a room in someone's house where people cook. Which is, by the way, part of, like, you know, when I did my doctoral research, like, the kitchen is the center of the house. Like, more than the bedroom, more than the living room, more than the dining room. Like, that's where all the action is, is the kitchen. Um, and so, you know, when they did this, this Kickstarter campaign, I think their initial funding goal was $18,000. Right, in something like three weeks. It was... Right, and they exceeded they... it in the first 24 hours. Right, and I think by day three, they were the uh, most highly funded Kickstarter campaign in a Jewish Kickstarter campaign in, in history, just to yeah, just to describe real quick what this is. It's a uh, it's a project called Hello Mazel, where um, if you uh, it's one hundred and eighty dollars for the year, and you receive four boxes uh, at different times in the year. I think tied to holidays for the most part, uh, and in these boxes they have hand selected or created some. Um, Jewish products. We don't really know what they are yet. Some of the, some of it is food. Some of it is ritual items of one kind or another that are kind of redesigned. And who knows what else are, is in them. And and that's one of the interesting things is that despite the mystery that we don't really know what's in these boxes, uh, it, it it seems to have really taken off. And uh, on the one hand, you know that it's incredible, right? It's the most highly funded Jewish Kickstarter campaign ever. Uh, on the other hand, looking at it, right, it's only nine hundred people out of the what, you know, six, seven million Jews that there are in, in America, depending on which uh, demographic survey you're reading. Right. But I mean, but but the fact that, like, you know, historicalness aside, you know, this is this is tweaking the continuity, right? Like, they're not, you know, whatever they're going to, whatever you're going to end up finding in that box, you know, I think they talk about, you know, habanero horseradish dill pickles for Pesach. Like, whatever that ends up in that box, it's going to be connected to the continuity of the Jewish people, right? Like, it's going to have some kind of ritual object. There's going to be food involved. You know, there's going to be maybe some kind of, you know, whacked out Haggadah of some kind. But, and yes, it's only going to hit 900 people. But the fact is that, you know, it's, I mean, A, it's scalable. Right, it doesn't have to just be for 900 people, um, but it's it captures the imagination and it gets people uh, excited about about Judaism, and it's not denominational in a particular sense, you know, and it's it has a broad appeal and it's you know, I, I, I hate to use the word novel, but I mean it, it's novel in in a way that. Jewish things are, you know, institutionally are not. But what's interesting as in terms of this particular project is that, like you were saying at the beginning, it comes from an organization in San Francisco called The Kitchen, which is, you know, sort of synagogue-ish, right? Uh, they describe themselves in different ways. But I think actually on their website, when uh, there's a, a frequently asked questions and somebody says, is this a synagogue? And they say, well, not exactly, but, you know, it's probably the closest to that of any other kind of organization. So you can think of us that way if you want, something like that. Um, but on the one hand, it's a product of The Kitchen. And the kitchen is a local organization that has, you know, various uh, elements to it. Um, but they've also created this project, Hello Mazel, right, which is going out to these 900 people. And I'm sure by the time this podcast goes up, and it's going to be a lot more than 900. Um, 
and they may live in you know Wichita, Kansas, and uh, you know Austin, Texas, and wherever, right? Not anywhere near the kitchen. And what's interesting to think about is like what's happening Jewishly to those people, right? Who who are receiving these boxes four times a year? You know, is that are these going to people who you know the other the, the, you know are, are, are members of synagogues and they're going to synagogue all the time? Or are these going to people who really these four boxes a year is going to be their main Jewish activity for the year? I don't know, right? We don't we don't know. But it, it's interesting to me to think about what if it is going to people who that is the, going to be their primary Jewish activity for the year, then that's the beginning, right? And then maybe the next year, who knows what they do? Sounds like a longitudinal study do? that's like tailor-made for you. You can you know, track down these 100 <laughs> people and, and interview them now and find out what they're doing in a year. But that's, this is just the start. I mean, I don't think that they probably anticipated this kind of response. But I mean, I've seen references to Hello Mazel like in a half a dozen different outlets and different you know, it got tweeted at me from a bunch of different people and shared with me. So, you know, its footprint culturally is larger than the 900 people that are going to get that box, you know, four times a year. Right. I, I agree with you that the footprint is, is much wider. But what's interesting to me and in, in thinking about remakes and how they happen, right? My other question to you was going to be kind of like, who does these remakes? Because, you know, you talk about we, like we, the Jews, have been good at recovering from these disasters and um, doing remakes. But I think we look around the Jewish community and we see a lot of people that are not good at it. And when we look back in history, I think it probably was the same, right? There were, most of the people that were highly involved in the Jewish world as it was were probably not too great at um, remaking, right? But so, so who are these people that are good at it? And are they... Are they kind of the um, insiders or you know, people like the kitchen, right, who, who um, you know, they, they are a kind of synagogue-ish, right? They are kind of part of the, the current milieu of the Jewish world, and they are now starting to, like, figure out some way of connecting b- more broadly than that? Or is it sort of other outsiders, other insiders? Is there any sort of historical pattern that we're seeing? Are there any sort of theories that you have based on, on, on your process of writing the book? Well, a lot of the a lot of the remaking is often sort of, I guess you know, again to use this word you know with guardedly is, is it's it's from elites, and it's not necessarily elites in the sense of the richest or the most powerful. Um, it's small groups of very committed people that undertake this effort and make it happen. I mean, if we go back to the example of Ben Zakai, like he was a member of the Sanhedrin, but the people that were sitting in Yavne were not. Um, and then he was ultimately, he stepped down and into the whole long discussion, you know, about what happened to him and the, the trajectory of his career post, post destruction. But if you look at the intellectual movements, you know, in Europe, post enlightenment, these were not necessarily, you know, it started by rabbinic scholars. I think that one of the things that I talk about in the last section of my book is the notion that the internet democratizes and that really anybody with an idea or an, a question, reach out through the internet and find other people that have the same question or the same idea, and they can get together and they can organize and they can do something. You know, I look at my daughter, you know, who you know, got into Rainbow Loom, you know, that uh, this you know children's arts and crafts fad and involves little rubber bands. Are you, are you familiar with that? Yeah, I know. I know it very well. I have a daughter too. How did she? How did she up her game with, you know, with Rainbow Limb? She got on YouTube, right? 
and she learned through, you know, and she figured out, I don't know how she figured out like who is the best person to watch and to teach. And she followed that person and that person through her YouTube videos showed her, you know, how to up her game in, in making rainbow loop. Um, and then she found another one where she can make a dreidel rainbow loom for Hanukkah. So, um, that, I mean, that's the thing about, you know, 2016, it's different than, you know, 70 CE is that, um, there's no barrier to entry anymore. You know, if you want to innovate, if you want to, um, you know, do something in the Jewish world, you don't need a Sanhedrin to do it. That was one of my favorite parts of the books was your analysis of the role that the internet has played already and and that barring any sort of changes will, I think, continue to play. And I just wanted to, I mean, and I also noticed that in the past few minutes, the way the conversations go, we've, we've used analogies to hardware and software. We've talked about um, Hello Mazel using Kickstarter. I mean, these are just basic, basic kinds of, of shifts that even the language wouldn't have worked a couple decades back and and the pace of change has been rapid. And I think that I'm almost surprised that our initial thought when it comes to the, the radical changes occurring to the Jewish community wasn't the role that the internet has played. Because when we hear conversations about generational differences and millennials, and all, we, we always hear about how the internet has shifted the way that people under certain ages engage with the world. Um, and I think that in the Jewish world, we are realizing that. But one point that you make in your book is that maybe we're not realizing it fully. Or if I'm remembering correctly, you talk about how the internet is just seen as like a means towards getting people to then connect with our institutions in person and not necessarily as something that can house Jewish engagement itself. And I'm curious if you wanted to talk more about that. What what it might look like, like what are other ways that the internet is a game changer? Well, I mean, I, I, I talk about this in, in the book, you know, I talk about JDate as an example. Um, and, and how there have been, I'm trying to think of the, of the individual who basically hacked JDate, but he sort of went on this, you know, he was, he traveled a lot for business. So he joined JDate and like had different profiles for different cities that he traveled in. I mean, that the idea there, I mean, I bring it up only to sort of emphasize the point that you can't you, you can sort of congregate in cyberspace, but you can't, you, you know for us as a as a people, you know, we're optimally designed to work in groups of ten, right? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, so we need we we'll still we still need the face to face. Like, we can't move everything, you know, online. That, that's only going to be like the facilitator for the face-to-face. So J-Date makes it happen that Jews who wouldn't be able to get together, get together or meetups or, you know, there's all kinds of, of different modalities that are in place for Jews to like sort of go into the internet, connect and reconnect and do this and do that. And then take that learning or that knowledge or that thing and bring it into the real world. I mean, I think of things of, of, of platforms like Safari as another example of, you know, where, or the Open Future Project, where people go online, go into this space, do this work, and then bring it back into their communities or into their lives. And, um, you know, I'm also part of a group on, on Facebook, you know, Jed Lab, where there's all kinds of interesting conversations going on, but, but that's, that's only part of it, you know, and, and the, the idea of sort of a community of educators and people thinking about, you know, Jewish education in its broadest form 
but it still doesn't mean anything until it's brought back into a classroom. So, Dan, I want to ask you about that, though, because um, that's true today. I mean, I wouldn't disagree with you today, but when we're thinking about futurology, right, and we're thinking about where lines are headed, it sort of feels to me like we may that 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 we may be underestimating the capacity of the internet to um to to be an even more profound change than that i mean i think that you you know and i think i talked about this in a previous episode but you you potentially have to follow me into the world of science fiction a little bit but um just to imagine just to think about what the internet was 10 or 15 years ago versus what it is today and then think forward what the internet is going to be 10 or 15 years from now it, it kind of feels to me that, right? It kind of feels to me that in a in a world in which you could imagine having virtual reality goggles and feeling like you're really in the same space with people, even though you're you're just standing there at home, or even just thinking today about how much of my own learning I'm able to absorb through um, watching lectures on YouTube or listening to podcasts, but from Hadar or listening to um, teaching company lectures on Jewish history from audible.com or whatever it might be that, and that's today that it just, I, it makes me wonder whether actually we could imagine and should imagine some future way of being Jewish that actually could live on the internet. Well, I mean, I, I tend to, I think that you're right. I think that eventually like it, this, this, this tool we use will become part of us, if you know what I mean. You know, like, to use a science fiction term, it's like the cyborg, you know, the fact that, like, you have a human being, but the human being is augmented by technology right. in some way. And, you know, I mean, I talk about it in the book. You know, we were, we were early adopters when it came to using the Internet to connect with other people. And I think that whatever technology that comes down the road, we're going to definitely use it and embrace it and, and, and you know, use it to its fullest because that's kind of what we do, you know, in each society. And, that, and that's something I also, you know, sort of glean from history is that, like, you know, we lived with the Babylonians, we took what the, Bab- the best of what the Babylonians had to offer, and we integrated that into our, into our system. And then we, we lived with the Greeks, and we integrated what they had to offer. And then we were with the Romans, we integrated what they had to offer. Then we lived with the Christians, and we integrated what they had to offer. And the same with the Muslims, and the same with, you know, in the French Revolution, and the same with, the, you know, with Marxism and all those other ideas that sort of... You know, we have a very, you know, a semi-permeable membrane when it comes to that kind of stuff. We only let in like the, the most useful things that we can use to sort of survive and carry forward. Um, so I imagine with the internet, it's going to be the same. You know, when when Oculus Rift becomes standard, you know, and when everyone gets the implant, I don't know what that implant's going to look like. You know, I'm sure that we'll find some way to use it for, you know, enhancing our study of Torah. Well, but it's interesting, like thinking about being early adopters, and you know, it, it, it again. I, I mean, maybe this is wrong, but I just, you know, sort of as a thought experiment, it sort of feels like um, thinking about how I don't know if we were early adopters, but we were certainly vigorous adopters of a previous new technology, right? Of the the written word, and the idea that we became the people of the book. I mean, we weren't the people of the book before there were books, right? We weren't the people of the book before uh, there was mass literacy, uh, uh, or we were. We may have been to some extent, but not really. Um, 
and and now it's sort of you know it's uh, it's obvious to everybody right how the centrality of texts to Judaism but I mean texts weren't central to Judaism before texts really existed so you know it's it's interesting to sort of think forward and say you know well could the could a new technology uh, sort of find its way into the very center of Judaism in a way that previous new technologies have uh, I don't know necessarily where that where that goes because it's something that we can't predict although you know I'm always fond of the um, of the quote by William Gibson uh, the science fiction writer where he says the future is already here it's just not very evenly distributed um, and it, it makes you wonder you know, maybe, maybe it is that that some of these small groups right whether it's the kitchen or others we should be seeing them as 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 the sort of yavnas of our day, right? The the locations where they're really way ahead of the time, and it's going to take a hundred years until what they're doing actually becomes Judaism, right? But uh, but nevertheless, it's it's actually going on today, and the question is how to recognize it and how to enhance it. And I guess I, I would prefer to join it rather than the uh, the stuff that's dying out. And the thing is that you know the the one thing I learned also from the, the grand sweep of history is that. Whereas, you know, 2,000 years ago, 1,800 years ago, 1,600 years ago, these things took decades to churn through and work itself out. You know, we, because of the times in which we live, you know, it won't take 50 years. You know, it may take 8 years, 10 years, 12 years when these things become more readily apparent. The mattress industry is being disrupted finally, right? <laughs> so, and, 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 you know, how many people have bought had to go to places to buy mattresses and it was absolutely impossible. Now, you know, you pick up the, you go online and you order a mattress that comes to your house, you know, right in a, in a, rolled up in a box. It's, it's what we're able to do now, as you said, was unimaginable 10 years ago. Dan, before we close, I just wanted to give you a chance to say anything else that you think might be important to add. No, I think that uh, I, I think that we, you know, really hit on you know, some really important ideas. You know, moving moving things forward, and I, I think your point that uh, you know that you mentioned that you quoted from from a, from a I guess a scholar GPS about you know, there were there already was a yeshiva in Yavne that that Ben Zakai asked for, and the fact is I think that there are a lot of us out there that are have a sense that this just isn't working. 15 years ago, we weren't able to connect and find each other. Today, that's less that's less true. I think that if you're motivated and you're interested and you're passionate and, and you care, um, there is a, a place for you to go to find other people that feel the same way. And there are different platforms for it and different, you know, opportunities for it. Right. Well, and I think that's at least... Uh, part of what we're trying to contribute to with this podcast and with our work in general at uh, the Institute for the Next Jewish Future and Judaism Unbound is just to try to start building a world of ideas that um, these this sort of general sense that, that this isn't working for us um, potentially can be channeled into um, some really concrete thinking about, um, well, why isn't it working? And what could work and would it still be Judaism? And, and we're kind of hoping that, um, that this series will start to help people think about those things in, in more concrete terms. So we're really grateful to you for joining us today. And if people are curious about what you're doing with uh, Tanakhcast and your blog, how can they find you and reach out to you? It's at thenextjew.com, but you can also find Tanakhcast on iTunes, and it's Stitcher, and it's SoundCloud, anywhere where podcasts can be found. 
And if anybody wants to uh, comment on our podcast, the best way to do that is to go to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. And if you want to reach Lex or me, you can send us an email at dan at nextjewishfuture.org or lex at nextjewishfuture.org. Thanks so much. This has been Judaism Unbound. 